church family. Um, delighted to be with you again. As uh, Pastor Nate said, we're going to begin a new sermon series. It's in the book of Mark. Uh, if you do not have your Bible and you want to use one of those that are in the pews in front of you, I think it's page 845. Otherwise, get on your devices or in your old school with paper Bibles. And we're going to be in the book of Mark. And uh, this is all about preparing our hearts for Easter as we step into this Easter season. And I've been thinking about this, about preparation. And um, my, uh, some of you might know, my wife is a preparation um, person. It's one of her great gifts. And so, like, I don't know if that describes you, but when you think about the holidays or special events that are happening in your family, um, Sue, when she thinks about it, she starts making a list of how she can create an environment at our house that's going to be a blessing to everybody. And she's thinking about what she's going to put on the table and what we're going to eat. And, and this is happening like a couple months in advance, right? And she'll mention something about, you know, this event that's happening in a few months. And she's, talk, she's already thought about all the deeds. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, where, where, where did that come from, right? Because I'm kind of a spur of the moment kind of guy. I've learned so much from my wonderful wife about being prepared and, and how that is helpful to us. And so as I was thinking about this season, I was thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful for us to be prepared for Easter? In our minds and in our hearts as we step into the, the greatest season that Christians have, that are following Jesus, wouldn't it be helpful for us to be fully prepared and ready to step into Easter together? So um, we're going to be in Mark, and I was thinking about this particular passage in Mark that you'll find in Mark chapter 10, Mark 10, verses 32 to 34. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible open there, Mark 10, 32 and 34. And as you do, again, I just want to reinforce that Pastor Nate was mentioning that we could um, sign up to be involved in that ministry we do on the Saturday before Easter Day. And I'm told that if you're one of the, the first 10 from right now that, to, to volunteer, you'll be able to do face painting on Pastor Fred and Pastor Nate and Pastor Harry. So if you'd like to do that, that's great. Be one of the first 10 to sign up. That'd be great. All right. Yeah, that's in your contract, Fred. Yeah, Harry. Uh, good. So, um, to prepare our hearts. And let me say this too. If you have not been regularly reading the Bible, I think you'll find it a really good tool for you to prepare yourself for Easter and to know the story leading up to it, to read the Gospel of Mark. If you're not in a, currently in a reading plan or reading through the Bible, take the Gospel of Mark. It's a short gospel. It moves super fast and um, it's got 16 chapters. You could read through it in the book of April. Some of you could read it, go home and read the whole thing today if you want. It's pretty quick. And it really will help you kind of prepare your mind and heart for why Easter happened. And that's part of what we're going to be doing here. So here's the text this morning. Mark 10, verses 32-34. And they were on the road. That is the, the followers of Jesus. So get in your, get in your mind as a large crowd of people are following Jesus at this point. And some of them actually are committed followers. Not all of them, though. Some of them are just part of the crowd. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So 
Here's the crowd. They're on this dusty road. They're walking up toward Jerusalem. And God had this plan from the very beginning in mind that this was going to happen. This very event was going to happen. And the crowd of people, including those who are followers, they're talking amongst themselves about all the things that have been happening in the last several weeks of their lives. And Jesus is out ahead of them, kind of walking out ahead, leading the pack. And it says there were a couple of emotions that were stirring within people. And they were amazed. And those who followed, that is, those who had committed to follow Jesus, were afraid. And you need to ask yourself, okay, what, what's going on with that? When you, when you see those things, those lines in the text of the passage, don't just race ahead. Just ask yourself, okay, what, what was going on with that? And taking the 12, so he takes the disciples aside. Again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's his title. They understand that Jesus is talking about himself at this point, right? And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. So those are pretty profound, uh, amazing words Jesus is saying to them and difficult to process. And it says the predominant emotions among these his followers were fear. And the rest of the crowd, for everybody, there was amazement. Why? I think Jesus is in the middle of preparing his disciples for Easter. In fact, I know it. And the text, as it has a flow to it, I think is really significant for us to catch what's going on. And how does it prepare us for these days to come for us. So we can really, truly step into Easter in a, in a meaningful, powerful way for us and for our friends. So back up the car a bit, if you would, to um, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus gives his disciples a life-defining question, and it's one of those questions that God calls out to everybody here, like every individual here this is one of those questions we have to wrestle with and answer for ourselves. I can't answer it for you. Your parents can't answer it for you. No one else, your spouse can't. The question he asked first is, who do people say that I am to his disciples? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Jesus, there are a lot of stories going along about who people say you are. People don't, haven't figured it out. And then he says those profound words, but who do you say that I am? That's the question like all of us have to wrestle with and deal with. Who do you actually say that Jesus is? Who is it? And at this point, the disciples had walked through and seen Jesus do a number of miraculous things. Like nobody else could do this. 
and they had seen demonstration. They had heard his teaching that was riveting. It was totally different and powerful, and they had come to a conclusion. I think most of them had come to this conclusion, and the conclusion was that he was the Messiah, and so Peter, being the one who typically articulates things first, he says, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah, and then these this crazy word here that happens after that, verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, isn't that weird? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that that's our mission, right? To build and to bridge relationships in order to pursue the life adventure of following Jesus together. It is to form relationships and to help other people. We are to go. But here he's telling people not to go. Don't go yet. And it seems curious. So why? Is it because of the timing thing? So if they did say that here's the Messiah, people would come and crowd around Jesus and do things they weren't supposed to do out of the timing of God? I, I don't think that's quite it, though that might be part of the equation. I think it's because the disciples don't know what that means. Right? They... they believe he's the Messiah, but what does that really truly mean? Because in their brains, when they thought Messiah, they thought he was a coming king on the physical earth, and they were going to like lead the charge, and they were going to conquer the Roman Empire, and they were going to rule with Jesus, and God was going to do this miraculous thing, and they were going to be in the in circle. Right? They were going to be in the in crowd, and the Messiah was going to be someone who did things like they were hoping released them from the bondage of the, uh, the Roman Empire. They had a wholly different picture of who the Messiah is, and they had been taught this by the chief priests and the scribes and those who were religious teachers. This was like embedded in their religious teaching, this skewed view of who the Messiah was. And so I believe that Jesus was putting on the brakes here. He was saying, no, 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 you don't understand. So don't tell anybody yet because you're going to tell them the wrong message. Here's the message. Follow the text with me, if you would, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus starts to teach them a wholly different perspective on God's plan. Have you ever been surprised that your assumptions about God are completely wrong? <laughs> And your plan of what you thought was coming was like not what God's plan was at all. I certainly have. And this is one of those moments for those disciples where he says, okay, I want to teach you what the plan of God is because you don't understand. And it's a crazy thing. It's going like, to make your mind burn up. It's going to be really hard for you to get. So here it is. Here's... God's plan for you. You might not have remembered the word of Isaiah, the prophet, or your other prophets who have been preaching this from the beginning, that the Messiah is going to suffer. Here's why. Because you're broken. You're a rebel. You have sinned against God. And because of that, judgment is coming. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son because he knew 
that Andrew was wrecked. And he loved Andrew. And he was going to come and save Andrew. And he was going to do that by taking all of Andrew's shame and his guilt and his sin on his own shoulders. And he was going to be publicly mocked and shamed and tortured and killed because of it. To take on my sin. And then, three days later, he was going to rise again. That was so crazy for them to hear. It was like impossible for them to process when they're hearing this because it wasn't like anything they had expected from him. And what comes next is not one of Peter's finer moments, right? What comes next is that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now get that picture in your mind for a second. Peter takes aside the Son of God and tells him that he's wrong, right? He firmly corrects the Messiah. Okay, you know, we do stupid things, right? And this is one of the all-time stupid things that he does. And Jesus is going to, when he confronts this, he doesn't just confront it kindly and say, oh, you got that a little bit wrong. Jesus realizes that something truly spiritual is going on in this, that Satan himself is using Peter and twisting the truth. And everybody had been a victim of this. They had misunderstood who the Messiah was going to be and and what God was doing. And so Jesus is going to give him a gut punch, right? That's what happens Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples. So the disciples are watching Peter do this. And probably many of them agreeing with Peter, what Peter is doing. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Your invention of what the Messiah was, that's all man's junk. It's not God's plan. Here's God's plan. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that we shouldn't die in our sin but experience eternal life. For God did not bring condemnation. He's not about condemnation. He's about life for you and about life for me. And the only way that's going to happen is if his very son takes on your sin and dies on a cross. And that's the story. That's the plan. And anything else is a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell, from Satan himself. And in that context, when they're all kind of reeling for what just happened, Peter, he, he draws the crowd to himself. So now it's the disciples and Peter who's licking his wounds and the, and the whole crowd, and Jesus is going to raise the bar on what following him means, what discipleship truly is. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Wow, he's not making it easy, right? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's saying, I want you to think about something really serious here, just for a moment. What's the most important thing to you? It's your soul. It's your eternity. That's the most important thing. Would you be willing to give everything up in order to make sure that your soul is right with God? Walk away from everything. All the relationships that you value, all the stuff that you have, the things that are holding you back, your priorities, your achievements, all that stuff. Would you be willing to be all in 
or not? That's a huge question, isn't it? It's humbling. It's hard. So Jesus gives them this major challenge. And then he says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? How can you buy back your soul? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, you can't. Only God can pay that price for you. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus raises the stakes. And he says, there's no part-time disciples, by the way. You can't give just like half of yourself to this, or you can't be like a, a synagogue believer just some, coming on Saturdays or coming on Sundays. That doesn't work in the kingdom of God. Here's the choice you have to make. All in, follow me, or don't. That's it. What do you want to do? And I think about it. What's your soul worth? What's your eternity worth? Wow, that was compelling. And um, he wasn't going to allow them to hedge their bets anymore. He was calling for the question. And I think then for that next week, there's a lot of talking going on. Those people that have been with him, they're having all kinds of questions and dialogue about it, processing it. And in that context, the story goes forward. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain top. And the text tells us that Jesus is transformed. He opens up to them a piece of his glory just to get it in their hearts and minds that he is the Messiah unlike they could ever imagine. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. He just opens himself up. I want you to see it like in a way that you will never forget who I truly am and who the Messiah is, that he is God in the flesh with you. And you probably haven't been aware of that and that God's plan is so different. But he shows them. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified, right? Sometimes we just spit out stupid stuff when we're all excited and overwhelmed. And that's exactly what Peter does in the moment. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Can you imagine that moment, being a follower of Jesus, but not having everything figured out, and all of a sudden, God the Father speaks to you. This is the son whom I love. Would you please listen to him? What would you do? Like, I would be listening like never before, right? Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There's that reference to a resurrection again. And 
They didn't know what that meant. Think about how foreign this is, that someone would die and rise from the dead. That doesn't happen. Yet Jesus is preparing them along the way, repetitively, that they would understand that this is all the plan of God to help them understand that God has control over life and death, and he's going to win the victory that we celebrate on Easter morning. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. How do you even process this kind of stuff? How do you think about it? And so they're walking along to the rest of the disciples, I'm sure wondering how they're going to communicate what they just experienced or not communicate it, and their minds are still spinning, and Jesus is still preparing them for what's to come. And when they return to the rest of the disciples, they discover that there's this big argument going on. The disciples are arguing with the religious leaders, and they're all in this big huff. And they've lost sight of the most important thing in the middle of this argument. So they're arguing over this young man who would come to them, and he was demon-possessed. And they couldn't do anything about it. The disciples couldn't, and the religious leaders couldn't do anything about it. And so they start blaming each other. They start getting in this argument. It doesn't tell us all the details of the argument, but they're at each other. And the disciples who had just seen Peter, James, and John, God open himself up, and then heaven open and speak to them. They walk into this, and they're hearing this argument going on with this young man. Now, some of you, when we think about When the Bible talks about demon possession, we get on our sterile, rationalistic hat, and we think, that could never happen. That's just like they must be talking about some kind of disease, and because it was way back 2,000 years ago, that's how they're framing it. But the truth is that in our world today, there's a spiritual battle for souls going on, and it's real. We don't pick up on it here in the U.S., like other places in the world. You visit other places in the world, and it's very obvious. And so Jesus is going to help them by preparing them for what's to come, see the nature of the spiritual battle. And this young boy who needs healing is in the middle of it. So Jesus enters into this conversation And as he does, and as this argument's happening, Jesus arrives and he turns to the boy's dad and he asks him the story. And the the dad starts pouring out this tragic story of his son and all the injury that had happened. And this dad struggling because he doesn't know what can be done about it. And these religious leaders and even the disciples couldn't do anything about it. And this, this boy is being consumed by this and wounded, hurt by this. And the dad turns to Jesus and says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, right? All things are possible for one who believes. This is about faith, faith in the living God. That's what it's about. And immediately the father of the child cried out, and I love what he says here. 
I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever been there, like, honestly, in your relationship with God? Yeah, I know this is true. I believe. But there's parts of me that have all this reservation, and I'm just not sure. I don't know. Oh, God, help my unbelief. Like, help my doubts, help me through this. Please. And that's how the man honestly turns to Jesus. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and says this. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, by anything but entering into the spiritual battle and calling on God for victory. Anything else doesn't work. This is, this is a spiritual battle. And you have to come to God for it. And he was helping them see, Jesus was, helping them see his power over Satan himself, over the most grotesque evil that you can imagine. He was victorious. And once more, these disciples are challenged, and they see his authority and his power and his teaching, one who had command over Satan himself. And in that framework, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, here's the second time it happens, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. But they did not understand saying, the saying, and were afraid to ask him. They're afraid because they saw what Peter did the last time, right? And what happened to Peter? So they're thinking, wow, he keeps saying this, that, that the Messiah himself, Jesus, is going to suffer and die and be killed and rise again on the third day. How does that even happen? I don't have no idea, but I'm not asking him again because I'm just, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do about all this. And then you would think that Jesus would make it simple for them, right? But instead it gets more complex. There's another layer of discipleship that happens because a young man comes to them. And it's a guy who looks like he's got everything squared away. He's rich, like he's one of those guys that gets a new car every year, or a new horse, right, or whatever, and, um, and he's got this nice family, and he's got this religious-looking life, and it looks like he's got everything squared away, and yet he walks away from Jesus because he can't commit. He's got other stuff keeping him away from saying, I'm all in. And they're wondering, if this guy's not going to get into the kingdom of God, what about me? How does this even work? And Jesus, chapter 10, verse 3, looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they think they've got it all together, that they don't need to trust God for everything. 
It's difficult to let go of everything and deny yourself and follow him. It's hard if you think you've got it all together to own your own sin and your own brokenness and your need for God. It's difficult. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, he's trying to get it right across them because they're still still grappling with understanding. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished because they thought that wealth was from the blessing of God. And so if a person is wealthy, they must be getting into the kingdom of God. But Jesus has turned everything upside down, right? That's the kingdom of God. It's turned upside down. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. Because your salvation, getting into the kingdom, it's not about you. It never has been. You can't earn your way, buy your way into God's kingdom. This is about God and what he can do. He can rescue you. He can rescue any person. And he wants to. He invites that to happen. God can do the impossible. All your shame, all your guilt, all your sin wiped away. God can do this. He can do the impossible. Who can be saved? God can do the impossible. And Peter began to say to them, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. If you do, let it go and say you're all in and walk after me and the fruit of that decision, it's going to be so much greater than what you can possibly imagine. You'll receive far more than you could have ever thought. But many who are first will be last and last first because my kingdom, it looks upside down to you. But this is God's design, not your design. This is the way I've intended it from the very beginning. And it's in this context, he says a third time, They will mock him, verse 34, and spit on him. And they will flog him. That is, they will tie him to a post, and they will take a cat of nine tails, and they will rip him open. And then they'll kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. On the third day. He'll rise. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for this that was to come in just a few days. They're walking on their way to Jerusalem. Next week, we'll be thinking about what happens when they finally get there, right? They have this triumphal entry, and then the Passion Week we'll celebrate together, and we'll celebrate Easter. But here, Jesus is preparing them And he's asking, I think, some probing questions for us as we think about this Easter. The first one is this. What is it that's keeping you from saying I'm all in? What is it that you cannot let go of to say I'm all in? I'm following Jesus and I'm depending on him to rescue me 
and, and be my salvation. I'm depending on him for eternal life. I had a really good week, although it was hard. I was with um, a dear family, the Cesar family, and we were together, and um, Sam, Cesar, went to be with Jesus this week. And you know how it happened? This was so cool. Uh, the family was gathered around Sam's bed singing a hymn when he went to be with the Lord. How amazing is that? The people that you love are all around you and you're thinking about the kingdom of God and you're singing again, praise to God and that's when you go, right? Um, what beautiful timing the Lord had for my friend Sam. Sam had made a commitment. He was all in, right? And he was committing himself to the Lord, and we have assurance that Sam is now present with the Lord because of the promises of God found here. He was ready, and Easter came early for him. It came a few days early. But for all of us, this is the message that the Lord would give us. Ask yourself the question, are you all in? What's your soul worth? Right? What, what are all the things you're involved with, your priorities, your stuff? What's that worth compared to what God has in store for us, for all of us to follow him? There's no comparison. And it's an outlandish promise that he makes, right? That three days later he'll rise again. To get to this place of saying, I'm all, I'm all in, I have to fully take Jesus at his word, and that's challenging for us, right? And so, if you are struggling with that, I want you to think about this dad who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. To have an honest, heart-to-heart conversation with the Lord God, right? That's, that could be wonderful to prepare your heart, my mind, my heart for God this Easter And ask yourself, what part of God's promises or his commands am I having difficulty trusting? Where am I struggling with my trust? God, speak into that place of me. Finally, open your mind and heart to the possibility that the work of Jesus that you have been experiencing up to this point in your life could just be the beginning. For those disciples... God had been preparing them for this moment and they had seen some astounding things. They had experienced some amazing teaching, right? But they had barely seen what God was going to do. They hadn't come to the empty tomb yet. They hadn't seen the Spirit of God descend and move them and draw thousands of people to himself and the church start to... They hadn't seen a ton of it. And regardless of what your age is, right here, right now, today, if you will say to the Lord God, I'm all in. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. This is the very beginning. You can't imagine what God is going to do with this. And for those of us who are believers, let me encourage you, you, you've just begun to see what God's about. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this powerful word. Prepare us, our hearts, our commitment to you. Convict and encourage us, inspire us to be all in. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the Messiah, the one who died for us, 
and who rose again on the third day. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.